0: Good morning, all right, Jack's awake, but it's good to be here with you as we approach Christmas, getting closer to Christmas. Um, There's a particular word that comes to mind that begins with P as I think about Christmas. What word might that be? Praise, that's a good one. I thought people might be saying presents, but uh, the word that came to mind is promises, Promises, as we think about all the promises that are pointing us forward to Jesus Christ. Well, we are in the Gospel of Matthew this morning. Matthew is one of the four Gospels and reminds us that Jesus Christ not only was predicted to come, but he has come. That is good news. Amen? Well, this morning we're going to talk about greatness particularly in the first part of Matthew 18. Greatness is something that we aspire to have. It's something we long for our children to have. It is something we take note of in athletes and generals and presidents. To this day, I'm still mesmerized by Michael Jordan playing basketball in the 90s. We see greatness in inventors, educators, and senators. We watch movies and documentaries about great men and women who exhibited greatness. How would you define greatness? Perhaps you might say, or maybe the world more likely would say, rapid advancement in your career, or material wealth, or just happiness in general. But today, we're going to look at what greatness looks like from the lips of our Savior, Jesus Christ. We're going to peer in on a conversation that Jesus had with his disciples as the disciples are wondering what greatness looks like. I will say this, true greatness is seen in biblical humility. Biblical humility is a characteristic of those who seek God's kingdom walking by faith in obeying Jesus Christ. That is greatness when you see that sort of humility. So let's look this morning at Matthew chapter 18. As I mentioned in the email I sent out on Friday, I hope you took a chance to look at that. We're not going to look at the whole chapter, but we're going to look at the first 14 verses. So stand with me, if you will, as we honor the reading and preaching of God's Holy Word. Matthew chapter 18, beginning in verse 1. So at that time, the disciples came to Jesus saying, Who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? Calling to him a child, he put him in the midst of them and said, Truly I say to you, unless you turn and become like children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Whoever humbles himself like this child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. Whoever receives one such child in my name receives me. But whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, it would be better for him to have a great millstone fastened around his neck and to be drowned in the depths of the sea. Woe to the world for temptations to sin, for it is necessary that temptations come, but woe to the one by whom the temptation comes. If your hand or your foot causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. It is better for you to enter life crippled or lame than with two hands or two feet to be thrown into the eternal fire. If your eye causes you to sin, tear it out, throw it away. It is better for you to enter life with one eye than with two eyes to be thrown into the hell of fire. See that you do not despise one of these little ones. For I tell you that in heaven their angels not the will of my Father, who is in heaven, that one of these little ones should perish. Amen. You may be seated. Would you pray, pray with me, please? Father, I thank you for this time together. I thank you that you are Lord of heaven and earth. You are the Almighty God. From everlasting to everlasting, you alone are God. So teach us to be in awe of who you are, to revere you, to not take sin subtly or lightly. But Father, I pray that we will recognize that you are a holy God, and you have called us to be a holy people. So Lord, just as disciples were wondering what greatness looked like in the kingdom of heaven, help us as your people to seek the kingdom. Father, your word says that you have come, you have sent your son to come to seek and to save the lost. So, Father, if there is someone here, even this morning, who is not seeking you, who is just wondering, who is curiously studying about you, but does not know you, Lord, I pray that you would draw them to yourself. I pray that they will see your beauty, see the beauty of the gospel, see that their need to repent and to turn to you, because your word says that we must turn Turn from our wicked ways, turn from our sinful self, sinful self, and to turn to you, and to trust in you. Lord, we thank you for your word. Teach us to obey it. Sanctify your people. Make us more like Christ. Lord, we do pray, as it has been prayed even over the past couple weeks, that we might be a people who thirst after righteousness. Lord, I pray that we will be a people who long to know you more. And Lord, I pray that you will cause within us a burning desire to obey your Holy Spirit in all things. Lord, we thank you for this word. I pray that the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart will be pleasing in your sight. Indeed, you are my rock and my redeemer. And Lord, I pray as a church family we can say that together. You are our rock. And our Redeemer. It's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Well, as I said in the email on Friday, we're not going to look at the whole chapter. We're just going to look at the first 14 verses. But in the first 14 verses, we have enough in and of itself to cover. Um, In fact, I I enjoyed going through uh, Genesis 28 this morning in Sunday school. And uh, Brother Morris is in no hurry. You know, he is just going through the verses systematically. And it's it's such a joy to just get all the rich, beautiful truths expounded from God's Word. So we are in no hurry this morning. That shouldn't cause you any time, cause for alarm. And so it's okay that we are going to go through this section and see three different sections and see three key words come out. Kingdom, temptation, and celebration. And as we see these three key words... We want to see humility is central in all three sections. Humility is central and is key in following Jesus Christ. We must be humble in order to know Christ and come to Christ. We must be humble in order to seek the kingdom. We must be humble in overcoming temptation and sin. And we must be humble in celebrating the work that God does. So three key words, kingdom, temptation, and celebration. So first, the kingdom of God. Is the kingdom of, the kingdom of God and the kingdom of heaven, as I've said before, synonymous terms, and the kingdom of God is central through the gospel of Matthew, and in the first six verses, we peer in on this conversation, and the disciples are a curious bunch. I love the disciples, not just because they're disciples, but because they ask the questions that are, we would probably be asking as well. You know, we're with Jesus, we're hearing Him teach, we're seeing signs, miracles, and wonders, and we say, what is going on? Just like we see in um, the book of Acts. Remember in Acts chapter 1, after the death, the burial and resurrection, the ascension is about to take place. And the, the disciples and apostles ask, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom of Israel or to Israel? And so they ask questions there, they ask questions here, and they know part of the plan, it's unfolding. The promises have come to Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, to David, and now David's greater son, Jesus. And so they see the map being filled out. The puzzle pieces are fitting together, and they've got questions. Just like maybe you have questions this morning. And so, what is their question in verse 1? What do they ask? Jesus who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? They want to know what the kingdom of heaven looks like. And so if they ask who is the greatest, this will give them a bigger idea, a a better picture. The disciples had learned from other groups that they were not interested in earthly power, but they want to know what true greatness looks like. So what does Jesus say? He illustrates what greatness and power look like through an example we would not have chosen. You know, we would not have chosen a child. So he chooses a picture of weakness and meekness in order to show greatness. So he calls a child in verse 2 to stand among the disciples. The disciples were probably in awe as to what was about to take place. And obviously, children were valued in Jesus' ministry. You know, he didn't have to say, go go to the town over and fetch a child. But obviously, there were children mingling and around the ministry of Jesus. And so he has a child come forward and to stand before the disciples. And Jesus says, truly, he responds to their question with this answer. Truly, I tell you, unless you turn and become like children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. This past week I was talking with someone who was struggling, grappling with the gospel and I read these verses to him. It's always great to be preaching and preparing a sermon because you always have a sermon in your back pocket. And so I said to him, I said, this is what Jesus says about the kingdom of heaven. We must turn and become like children. And he said, that's given me a lot to think on. Likewise, the disciples probably thought the same thing. That's given me a lot to think on. These are significant words from the mouth of Jesus for us to meditate on. So what does Jesus mean when he says we must turn and become like children? I'll tell you what he does not mean. He does not mean that we must be gullible or naive or that we must be innocent because obviously none of us are. But what he means is that we must be dependent. We must have childlike faith. Just as a child, particularly an infant and baby, uh, is dependent upon their parents, likewise, we must be dependent upon Christ. We must turn and look to Christ. The Gospel of John says, apart from Christ, what do we have? Nothing. In Christ, we have everything. And so, we must not seek comfort, we must not seek salvation from within, we seek salvation through Christ. If we are to be in God's presence, as this question alludes, the greatest in the kingdom of heaven, we must look to Christ. We must believe in Him. We must cling to Him. In Christ, we have everything. But to come to this conclusion, it takes humility. It takes dependence. For there to be conversion, we know this in our own life, we must continually remind ourselves when we came to faith, when we trusted in Christ, that we must turn. We must repent. We must repent from our sins. We must turn to Jesus. We must cling to the cross. We must have faith in the Messiah. Those who have faith, those who repent, are not arrogant. They are humble and they seek the Lord. They are dependent upon the Lord. So Jesus says, "We must turn and become like children; This includes repentance, and when we repent, we recognize our need for forgiveness. This is one of the greatest gifts you can give someone this year at Christmas is to tell them that they can be forgiven. Forgiveness is offered forgiveness is offered through Jesus Christ. We see in the midst of this chapter at the last section, the importance of forgiveness." We see the the parable of the unforgiving servant later in the chapter. And so Jesus emphasizes forgiveness. Forgiveness and humility are essential to the kingdom of heaven. But Jesus continues with his illustration of a child in relation to the disciples' question. Look what he says in verse 4. Look with me in verse 4. He says, whoever, here's that word again, humbles. Whoever humbles himself like this child... Is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. So Jesus defines greatness for us here. Greatness is not seen in prosperity, but in humility. This is countercultural. This is, this contradicts what we hear from our neighbors and friends and our careers and our bosses. We hear prosperity is what makes you great. We hear rapid advancement in your career is what makes you great. But here Jesus says you must be humble. So greatness is seen not seen in prosperity, but in humility. Everyone ever created must recognize their need for God. Just as David read earlier from the Psalms, the nations, the peoples, all classes, all socioeconomic class, every nation under the sun must recognize there is one God. And they must recognize their need for Him. All people must recognize their need for a Savior. So Jesus shows us that children are humble, dependent, and sho- and it shows meekness. This is the key to greatness. So the kingdom of heaven is not built upon wealth and our creations. It's built upon faith in Christ, trusting Him and thirsting after righteousness. Jesus is teaching us again about what it means to seek the kingdom of God. Now look with me in verse 5. In verse 5, Jesus, He raises the stake in His illustration when He says, whoever welcomes one child like this in My name, what are they doing? They are welcoming, Jesus says, they are welcoming Me. So if you're welcoming a child like this, you're welcoming Me. So this reminds let me back to Matthew chapter 6 when he said, If you forgive other people when they sin against you, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. You see the connection there? You see the tie there? Jesus ties forgiving others to being forgiven. Here, in this passage, Jesus ties love for others and love for other children with childlike faith to love for him. So this is the positive side here, the positive aspect of welcoming one with a childlike spirit. But now, the conversation gets a little bit more intense. The negative aspect and the consequence for those who contribute to the downfall of believers. Jesus makes it clear to his disciples and to us today that we are to welcome childlike faith and we are not to hinder believers in their belief. What does Jesus say? Whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to fall away, it would be better for him to have a heavy millstone hung around his neck and he would drowned in the depths of the sea. Those are heavy words. The passage is about to get more intense. Was Jesus going overboard here? No, he's not. He is using hyperbole, but he's using it to make a point that we are not to hinder others in their faith. We're not to deceive others. We're not to distract others. We're not to demolish others in their faith. We must admonish others to continue in their faith. So Jesus is reminding the disciples that we are to admonish others to continue in their faith. These words are sobering and reminding us we're not to do anything that would hinder someone from following Christ. Peter tells us later in the New Testament that we must welcome other believers and show hospitality to one another without grumbling. So we are called, just as we see in the great commandment, to love God and to love others. We are to love others and not lead them astray in word or deed. If someone hinders a believer or seeks to deceive them, there could be, I'm not God, but there could be I'm not going to give a prophecy here, but there could be severe consequences. So we must take stock of our own lives. Our teaching and our example must not create barriers to belief in Christ. We must point others to the beauty of Christ, not detract from it. Well, Jesus continues with not detracting or not distracting others in their faith. He talks about temptation, temptation to deceive others and temptation to be deceived yourself. Look with me in verses 7, 8, and 9. Verses 7, 8, and 9 are like verses that most preachers want to skip over. You know, myself included. Like, well, how can I just bypass this passage? These are heavy words, but words we must hear. We must resist temptation. And Jesus teaches on the power of sin and temptation in our own lives and in others. Jesus says, woe to the world because of offenses. So he says, this is what the world does. They offend, they sin, they transgress, they rebel. This is what the world does. But offenses will inevitably come. But woe to that person by whom the offense comes. Jesus is drawing a line here between the world and the believers. Those who follow Christ must not act like the world, must not lead others to um, deception and to fall away. And so Jesus reminds us, the world brings sin and judgment. But we who believe are not to enable and encourage sin of any sort. Jesus continues and warns of the danger of sin. He says here in this passage, he says, if your hand or your foot causes you to fall... What causes you to fall away, cut it off, throw it away. What is Jesus saying here? He is not teaching us to inflict bodily harm upon ourselves. No, that is not what he's teaching. But He is teaching that we must take sin seriously. Hebrews chapter 12 are verses that we've probably heard before, but we must apply to our own lives. Hebrews 12 says this, Consider him who endured from sinners such hostility against himself. And if we had the context here, I know Brother Paul knows this, is that we are looking to Christ. Remember Christ and what he has done, so that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted in your struggle against sin. So there will be a struggle, we all know that. In your struggle against sin, you have not yet resisted to the point of shedding your blood. So what Jesus is saying here is we must take extreme measures in fighting and battling against sin. We must remove sin before it leads to judgment. This is what Matthew 5 says as well. You can read it up on the screen. We won't go through that passage. But we must see sin is to be taken seriously because eternity requires urgency. Sin must be taken seriously because eternity requires urgency urgency it's not something you can say well i'll put on the back burner we must be urgent in removing sin through repentance how do we do this well through self-examination through the community of christ through the body of christ exhorting one another together to cling to the cross to run to the cross to remember that the blood of cross covers all sins So we must rehearse the gospel, preach the gospel to ourselves, and remind one another, Christ has come to remove sin. We must expose sin or eventually we will be exposed. Sin, like a disease, loves to hide. But we must reveal sin, remove the disease and run to Jesus. If we don't, there are serious consequences. We see in verse 9, look with me in verse 9, Jesus says, if your eye causes you to fall away, gouge it out and throw it away. It is better for you to enter life with one eye than to have two eyes and be thrown into hellfire. This is the warning, warning, warning. Pay attention to sin. One body part can be removed, but your soul is at stake here. So I don't want to soften the weight of this passage. Obviously, you've heard it. Obviously, we read it. But look again in verses 8 and 9. What is mentioned here? Eternal fire in verse 8. Hellfire in verse 9. Now, you can find a commentary to suit whatever interpretation you want to support. And so you can find a commentary that tries to remove the weight and the thrust of hell. But if you find a good biblical commentary and you talk to good biblical believers, you see verses 8 and verses 9 refer to the reality of hell. People try to diminish hell, distort hell, throw hell away, discard it. But there is a real, literal hell. So it would be foolish for us to overlook these verses. There is a place of unspeakable misery and pain that is eternal and set aside for all who die unbelieving and resist repenting. It is called hell. Hell is mocked in our culture and thrown around flippantly in movies and in everyday conversations, but the biblical picture of hell must not be ignored, must not be mocked, must not be discarded. So let me remind you that eternity in heaven or hell should spark urgency in our souls. First and foremost, for us to take stock of our own lives, but also it should lead us to share, to speak of the hope that we have. If we know that there's therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, then we also know that there is condemnation for those who have rejected Christ Jesus. So that should spark within us loving compassion for our neighbors and friends and family members. Let us continue. It's the last section. We look at the last section of Scripture. We've seen where to seek the kingdom, where to resist temptation. Now, the last section, verses 10 through 14, we are called to join the celebration. We must remind ourselves that God is doing something when he is calling people unto himself. Just as we learned in Sunday school, God had called Abraham to himself. He called Isaac, called Jacob, not because of their goodness, but for his own purpose and grace. Now look with me in verses 10 through 14. Jesus reminds us the importance of causing little ones to stumble. We must be careful in guarding our beliefs, our teaching, and our actions as we continue in the faith. And so we were rem- reminded here in this section that I tell you, Jesus says, that in heaven their angels always see the face of my Father who is in heaven. So we see here that we are not to despise these little ones. Jesus says for their destiny is to be like these angels, un- seeing the unshielded glory of the Father's presence. So we are not to hinder these little ones. We are not to hinder believers. And then we see, as the, as the passage transitions, Jesus, like Luke, speaks of how the Son has come to seek and save the lost. And so there's a couple questions as we close. In verse 12, Jesus says, What do you think? If someone has a hundred sheep and one of them goes astray, won't he leave the ninety-nine on the hillside and go and search for the stray. Here is the heart of the Father. Here is the delight of the Son in saving the lost. So Jesus gives us another reason to not hinder or harm the little ones. The shepherd cares for the sheep. The Father cares for the little ones. The shepherd shepherds feed and care for the sheep. They go after those who have wandered off. Jesus cares for His sheep, the church, the believers. So Jesus tells us that a shepherd who finds a sheep rejoices. Jesus now brings his teaching to a point when he says, in the same way, he uses a physical illustration to make a spiritual application. He says, in the same way, it's not the will of your Father in heaven that one of these little ones should perish. God does not delight in death. This is a result of the fall. He celebrates life, and we should too. God delights in the rescue of His sheep because He loves His sheep. He loves the flock. God's love is amazing and that God is not going after one sheep at the expense of the entire flock. He pursues one sheep so that He might protect the entire flock. He goes after them. And I want us to see a few things from verse 14. It says, this is the will of God. It's not the will of God that the sheep should perish. It is the will of God that the sheep might be saved and rescued and redeemed. This is the will of God in pursuing sinners. Pursuing sinners like you and like me. God pursued us even when we were not pursuing Him. God's love is amazing. It's unfathomable. It's hard to imagine. It's hard to understand when we think about it. But when we see God's love, we understand the beauty of the cross. I want us to see a short video. This is from the Together for the Gospel group. And they like to put together videos of testimonies. Many of you could probably share a similar story of how God's amazing love, scandalous love, opened your eyes it's hard to imagine what god has done for us we try to be something when we recognize we realize we are nothing apart from christ tim keller says god's love and forgiveness can pardon and restore any and every kind of sin or wrongdoing it doesn't matter who you are and what you've done There is no evil that the Father's love cannot pardon and cover. There is no sin that is a match for His grace. God is doing an amazing work in drawing sinners into salvation. And we see that God pursues not just the rebellious, but the pious. Those who think that they have it all together. Those who are seeking knowledge. And those who are seeking lots of other things. So wherever you might be, rejoice in the fact that God has pursued you if you're in Christ. And let me encourage you today that if you are running from Him, run to Christ. He can save you. Let us pray.